Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Genesis. As promised last week, I am set to engage uh, the Ten Plagues once again, but this evening is not a monologue, but a dialogue, as I have Andrew Palmquist in with me. So, Andrew, great to have you with me another evening. It's good to be here again, Joe. So, Andrew, as I had just mentioned over the past three and maybe four weeks now, actually, Andrew, I think it's been, what, five weeks since you've joined me, I've been talking about the plagues, and I thought before I launch into the next series of reflections in the book of Exodus, it would be good to hit the pause button to kind of reflect into what I just talked about. I mean, if there is any one great narrative in the book of Exodus that stands out to many people, it is the Ten Plagues. I know you have, of course, the parting of the Red Sea and the great event uh, that took place on Mount Sinai, but certainly we could say the Ten Plagues, what happens from what is it, Exodus 7 through Exodus 12, and really even into 13 and 14, you have the ten plagues. There's so much there. Um, So out from your own reflections and and ponderings, Andrew, what were some of the things that jumped out to you? So what caught me was just watching the whole drama unfold, and what I kind of saw was uh, God on trial. When it starts off, Moses comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is asking Moses, why should I hmm. allow you to, to serve this God that I don't know? And the rest of the ten plagues are Moses showing Pharaoh who that God is yeah. through the miracles and the signs and wonders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and at first, you do see the magicians, are they're able to kind of replicate what Moses is doing, but by plague three or four, they're, they've given up. They are the ones also being afflicted by the plagues. They, they, they can't even show up, right? Yeah, I mean, no, that's, that's ex- exactly what it says, is uh, dur- uh, during the plague that caused the boils, mm-hmm. the magicians couldn't show their faces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And after that, you don't hear from the magicians again. Yeah, But they also weren't able to replicate the, uh, the, the flies or the, uh, the gnats either. Mm-hmm. So, but, but what I've seen is I, I see a natural um, consequence for the decisions that the Egyptians had made 40 and 80 years previous to this, you know, putting, putting the people of God's people, the Hebrew people in, into slavery. And God does hear the cry of his people. And so he has to have a just consequence for the suffering that his people have gone through. And that's why we see part of the reason, I think there's many reasons why, but that's part of the reason why we see these plagues unfold and in, from the perspective of an Egyptian, you see evil things, death, destruction mm-hmm. happening to their people, their livestock, and their communities. Mm-hmm. So I, I just see that God's—in in all of this, I see God's mercy. I see that God God has long-suffering, and God—not only did he wait to cause the plagues, but there was a reason that those plagues were caused. So it, wasn't, it wasn't haphazardly, and God wasn't— God, I don't. I don't believe that God can cause 
evil. You know, it has to be in judgment for something else. You know, I think you and I have talked before, Andrew. I've received the question, if God is so loving, why is there evil in the world? Well, it's because God is so loving that there's evil in the world. Inside of every act of love, right, is the choice to love. Mm. You can't have love without freedom, because each and every one of us have the choice to either go against God or to love God. And so when we go against God and choose evil, God responds to that accordingly. And so certainly that's part of the the drama that plays out on the stage that is salvation history itself. You were talking beforehand, before we came on air here, Andrew, about um, the Israelites and them trusting God during the silence. You just said, Mm -hmm. God hears the cry of the poor. Yes. Could you speak to that a little bit? The people, the Hebrew people cried out to God. There's a time in our Christian walks where we cry out to God, and you don't always see the the answer right away. We mm-hmm. have to trust God in the silence. And and that's where he's working, but we don't see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> where he's, he's preparing for us. He's, he's preparing our blessing, but our blessing might come on the backs of someone else's struggle. God can't just snap his fingers and have that take place overnight. So even while God is promising to the Israelites a land of milk and honey, he is working diligently to save the Canaanite people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as the Canaanite people reject God, then that creates what will be the home for the Israelites. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. And as I listened to you, and and when I heard you first speak of of God in silence, Andrew, I was made to think of Elijah, Mm. how in 1 Kings 19, we read Elijah bemoaning that God has not come to his protection. Huh? Mm. So what does he do? As we read in 1 Kings 19, he flees into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, that is Elijah, his mood is one of defeat and desolation, right? After all that he had done for the God of Israel, his victory now seems almost, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A vitiated, if you will. You see, Elijah is about as low as he can be, and it is precisely then that what happens? God rides in and, and comes to his aid. You know, what is going on here? You know, Andrew, when our ego is riding high, confident in its own power and resourcefulness, it rarely reaches out to God, right? Uh, but when our ego is knocked around, when our ego is wounded, when our ego is powerless, it is then that God rides in. What does Paul say? I willingly boast of my weakness. Really, he says, I desire (laughs) to boast of my weakness. Why? Because when we feel powerful, I think it is then that we, we keep God at bay. You know, God, with respect to the narrative of Elijah, and I think to some degree this can be transposed to what's going on in Israel, or rather in Egypt, God never gives up on Elijah. We could say that God's teaching moment begins when Elijah's resourcefulness runs out. Of course, we know the narrative, Andrew, uh, eventually angels from God feed him in his weakness, and then God leads him through a time of reflection, and that eventually is quite a long time. It's not 40 or 80 years, but it's a long time, right? So essentially, the Elijah story, I think, speaks powerfully to all those, Andrew, who are worn out before we came on air. You were talking about humanizing, you know, the story of Israel. Certainly, 
Elijah helps us to humanize this and how these narratives speak powerfully to, to all those who are worn out. Or maybe we could also say to all those who are fearful or in need of renewal and, and recommitment to their original calling. You see, for me, the story of Elijah, and even for that matter, what, what happens in the much bigger picture in, in Exodus, is a story that suggests a way forward. Now, eat and drink of God's life-giving sustenance, return to the core of faith, and listen for God's still small voice. Huh? There's the place for a new energy, a, a new vision, and a sense of purpose, right? A sense of purpose. Elijah, as the Israelites, must learn that, that God is not encountered in the sound and fury of loud and spectacular events although they have both experienced that, and for the Israelites, what they will experience, right? God will just not be reduced or, or conjured up by the zealous or, or boisterous activity of, of God, or in the case of Elijah, the prophet who, who now stands quiet and broken in the wilderness. And I think this is so important for us, because in the end, what it all teaches us, Andrew, is that the Israelites eventually, and certainly Elijah, discover that God is encountered when the activity ceases and the words stop, when the heart is sad and the stomach is filled with pangs of hunger. So when Elijah's mind and heart are finally empty of ambition and self-promotion, God is ultimately heard. Why the silence? Because it is in the silence that God will ultimately be heard. When the noise stops, God will be heard. And that's a point to be had with respect to any reflection that deals with God in silence. Yeah, and it would seem that both, both of those stories, Elijah and, and Moses and Aaron, um, they relate to a wilderness experience. Mm. Even uh, Jesus and John the Baptist, and I would probably say on our, on our own lives that God takes us not only takes us to the wilderness, but takes us through those wilderness experiences or our walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Mm. Mm. And uh, in, in this case, that's what started the Exodus, was a desire to go to the wilderness for three days to worship God. Mm-hmm. And as you follow all ten plagues, multiple times Pharaoh's, Pharaoh says the people can go worship God, but then he says only the men... And there's then, a, there's always a condition. There's right? a, yeah, there's always a condition. But he, he so then he says only the men. He says only the men and the women and no livestock. And then he says only the livestock that you need for the sacrifice. And and every time he changes his mind. And, and what the scripture says is that he does evil. Mm. And so uh, Pharaoh says one thing and does the other. And then God says, "Don't don't worry, Moses. I've hardened his heart." Yeah, yeah. And and that's an interesting. A piece. I know I've talked about this before, but probably something to draw out a little further with respect to what's this business of God hardening the heart of, of Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Um, first, we should note, I think, Andrew, that we read in the account of Exodus that it was just not the Lord that hardened his heart, but also Pharaoh himself who hardened his heart. If you were to go to Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, there we read, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, 
as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Mm -hmm. But in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, so a whole chapter before we read, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart Mm. and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He, of course, being Pharaoh. And all throughout uh, this narrative, what you see is on one hand, yeah, God hardening the heart of Pharaoh, but on the other, Pharaoh himself hardening his heart. And so I think in the end, what we are made to see here, Andrew, is not so much an imposition of God where he's hardening the the heart of Pharaoh against his will. We must remember that God can never impose upon the will, right? Because as we just spoke to it with our reflection in the relationship between freedom and love, he won't do that. Mm -hmm. It's more about what God allows. This is what uh, Thomas Aquinas would call God's permissive will. Um, Another way of looking at this, I think, Andrew, is through the lenses of a kind of passive presence. What do I mean there? Well, say you get a promotion with a big raise, and a coworker really wanted it instead. He might say or he might think, man, you make me so jealous, right? (laughs) Now, you have not done anything to intentionally create this envy, right? But your existence... And circumstances are passively, we could say, before him. And so he reacts to it in an envious way. It hardens his heart towards you, if, if you will. You see what I'm saying there? And, and I think with respect to the hardening of, of Pharaoh's heart, that's what you, you have going on there. His mere presence, in a manner of speaking, hardens Pharaoh's heart. We say his heart was hardened, but is that just another word for pride? Uh, certainly, that's what leads to it. This is, uh, this is the lead sin in, in the affairs of the Garden of Eden, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it should not come to our surprise that we see this play out in every subsequent episode. So yeah, pride is, is I think, what leads to the hardening of the heart. Mm. Uh, I mean, in our own pride, our hearts become hard. We were talking about this before, Andrew. I mean... We should be very careful to just say, oh, look at what Pharaoh did and we never have anything to do with. <laughs> no, that's right. silly. And God knows the heart. And I think God, God could see Pharaoh's heart even before it was, it was hardened. And obviously God knew what was about to happen. But in, in, uh, in my experience, God will give us just enough rope. And it's our choice whether we choose to use that for good or evil. And I think God was doing that with Pharaoh and God does that with us and in similar, similar ways on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's just our, our choice of whether we'll have a calamity or a crisis and we'll cry out to God and promise to serve him, and then as soon as that crisis is gone, we forget about the promise to serve him, and we, you know, what Scripture says, we would do evil against God by breaking our promise. Yeah, amen. And God giving us that rope is, is what it's about. You know, It's, again, about the choice that is before us. Our vocation is really caught up in... In the drama of choice. I, I love the line that comes to us from John Paul II. I think it's his exhortation on, on catechesis of the faith and how we are called to educate in the faith. He, he says that history is just not some series of, of chronological events in as much as it is an event of freedom, in as much as it is an event of choice. That history itself is defined by the choices we make. We know figures like Mussolini and, and Hitler and Stalin, and, and also figures like John Paul the Great and 
Winston Churchill because of the choices they made, some for bad, some for evil, some for good, some for, for God, right? So it's about the choice that is before us. Everyone is going to have a story to tell, right, at the end of his life and in their final conversation with Jesus. Even if you think about the word history, right, historia is where that word comes from, to weave a pattern, right? Mm. All of our choices that we make have a pattern, and that pattern leads to a picture, right? And that is what is before other. Um, something else to Andrew, before I hand it back to you. Mm-hmm. We've talked about God's justice. I think it is important for us to understand that God's justice is swept up in his merciful love, right? It's always swept up in his merciful love. God is Father. God is Father. And as such, at least for you and I, Andrew, it's worth reflecting upon God as Father because I think we can gain insight there as fathers. You know, I, I give my children consequences— so that they don't do something again. Why? Because I want to see him in pain, in agony, in anguish? No, because I love him. I ground my child for two weeks or for however long um, because I don't want to see him running across the street without looking both ways, chasing a ball when a car's coming 50 miles per hour. Right. Right? And in those two weeks when he's grounded, he's going to think twice about running across the street Chasing the ball when a car's coming without looking both ways, right? So God, and, and I, I hate to be so plain about this, <laughs> but really, I think it gets to the core of it. If we look at God as this punitive policeman, some institutional authoritarian waving his finger saying, you know, my vengeance is after you. No, 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 no. When you read about consequences in sacred scripture, ultimately, in the end, it's about something that comes from a merciful heart. And all he's concerned with, Andrew, is our salvation and the salvation of his people. And if we stub our toe along the way, well, what does St. Paul say? God chastens those whom he loves. So very important, I think, when we talk about justice and mercy. Yeah, and I was just drawn by the fact that uh, Moses lets this whole thing play out in a way that uh, Moses was somebody, you know, he he could have uh, done away with or he could have chosen, Pharaoh could have chosen just to take care of the problem. You know, this continual reminder of Pharaoh's failures when Moses comes before him and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh keeps having to make these choices between bringing another plague up upon his people. But at, at one point, before Moses even goes before Pharaoh, he's asking God, when he's talking about his his eloquent speech and yeah, his yeah. Ne- need for Aaron— and and God says back to Moses, "You will appear before Pharaoh as a god. This is, this is a, as as almost as a god before Pharaoh. Yeah, yeah. And basically, you're you know, you're doing my will. But so in in Pharaoh's mind, this is Moses is challenging his authority. And here here Moses is, you know, basically in line to have been Pharaoh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And only only one person could fill this role because Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh, and now he's coming back and saying, hey. Uh, now I don't know if it was the little brother or big brother situation, but hey, hey, little brother, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Oh, no, that's a very important point historically. How is the Pharaoh going to be looking upon Moses? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there's like a sibling rivalry going on, mm-hmm. and and but God is saying you'll appear to Pharaoh as as me, and yeah. he'll he'll see because his magicians now they're they've run out of rope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God 
gives Moses that ability, and he goes before Pharaoh and performs the signs. And I think that just as much as God was teaching the Egyptians, God was also building the faith of Moses and Aaron through that process. And and God says that this this isn't just for Egypt so that my signs can be displayed and so that the whole world will know about me. This is also for you and your children. So as we talk about being good fathers, God is saying, I want to give you some material to teach your children so they know that I am God and I'm the God that took you out of Egypt. Yeah, and as I do give you this, this is also going to be a sign for you to be enriched in your faith is is what I'm hearing. I often go to that line from uh, Superman, when Superman is looking upon his son, and he says, it is in becoming a father that I better understand what it means to be a son, Mm. right? And in that moment, we gain access into the infinite wisdom of just not relating to our children, which is God's gift to us, Not, not just how we might be a gift to our children, but how our children are a gift to us, because then we can almost like through a prism, better understand God's fatherhood. And so I, su- I suppose in a manner of speaking, uh, this relates to your point as you speak to how God uses Moses mm-hmm. on behalf of the people, but even in that moment, it's also for the salvation of just not his people, but Moses himself, that the gift given for those outside of Moses is a gift for Moses himself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a gift for Aaron himself. Mm-hmm. And that is invaluable, right? Yes, we know Moses as the great mediator of God, right? He is known as the chief mediator of God. I mean, there's a lot of mediators in the Old Testament, but he is regarded as the chief mediator and within the context of salvation history. He is also, as Scripture reminds us, the most humble man upon all the earth. Uh, why is he the most humble man upon all the earth? Although I always wondered about that verse, because Joseph was a pretty humble guy, right, in Genesis uh-huh. 37 to 50. Anyhow, um, certainly we could inquire, why was this man so humble? Well, because as mediator, he was witness to these great signs. And for every act that he performed, he knew it didn't come from him. So it was almost like for every sign, he was shrinking you know, that God might become greater. What does John the Baptist say when Jesus arrives over the hill? May he increase as I decrease. I think this has always been one of the great Christian prayers. May he increase as I decrease. Uh, anyhow, it is enough to say that when you, yeah, ponder the deeper meaning of just not the signs, but the one who was mediating those signs, there, there might be a lesson to be had. And I love the point you make there, Andrew, with respect to the sibling rivalry. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very important historical point. I know the movies that that pick up this narrative they they tend to to touch upon that aspect as they Moses as, as, grew up as an orphan in, yeah. in some ways, so maybe God God was or became his father, you know, yeah, more so than the Pharaoh was. Sure, sure. And I I just uh, I know that God desires to take us each through our own personal exodus at times, and there's. There's going to be periods where God tells us not not to harden our hearts, or maybe sometimes we respond with a hard heart, and there's times where we have to go warn others about God's mercy. Yeah, yeah. And we need to be willing to to kind of walk through all those steps, you know, to say that in one sentence, but just, just to say that the Exodus story isn't so far back in history that it's not applicable to today. God will ask us to both lead, do miracles, stand up, 
in high places, God will raise us up from where we were born and, and cause us to serve him. And in that field, we were born into. Yeah, and I think your point is crystallized in the Gospels, because how did the Gospels speak of Jesus' departure? But as his great exodus, right? Mm-hmm. The, actual, the, word, uh, the actual word exodus is used. So if we are going to live this, this journey in Christ, then we do it with the exodus constantly in mind, with the exodus in a rearview mirror, right? And I think that's a, um, a point well said. Uh, any closing thoughts, Andrew, to our reflection? I know there were some other things we had here to potentially talk about, but... <laughs> um, well, I guess I would just touch on how, how Moses acted as a free man uh, while he was seeking to do good for the Hebrew people at the same time. His, his actions caused harm in Egypt. At times, God will cause good actions from us that may result in what would be bad to someone else, yeah. and are ca- causing for enduring, long-suffering times of consequences. Or when we receive good, or we maybe we pray for good for someone, we have to have the um, endurance to see through to the end and know that that good sometimes comes with turmoil, pain, suffering and other growth. While God's going to take you down that walk of faith, it's not going to be without challenges, and it's mm-hmm. not going to be... so. It, and, and you see that even before Moses ever goes back to Egypt. Sure. In all of these little steps, one of the key points for me is watching Moses and Aaron master the snake, this turning the staff into the snake, and they're doing that in the wilderness. Yeah. And, yeah. and God, God tells him to grab the snake by its head. And, yeah. that's, that, and then that's something they go, they perform that in front of Pharaoh and the snake eats up all the snakes of the magicians. But yeah. some of those, like we might see it as silly, God's asking us to step out in faith and to trust him. And if God says, pray, you know, kneel at your bed and pray or open your Bible, you know, we might have some of the words already memorized in our heart, but God's trying to show us something and we need to humble ourselves and in some ways take that dominion from the serpent in the garden, which I think is kind of what God was alluding to with the staff, is to say, take dominion over the serpent. Very good point, Andrew. As you speak to that, I am made to think about times in my own life where I was going through a particular challenge, and I had no idea why I was going through what I was going through until three, five, sometimes ten years later. Mm. And I was made to pass through something and, and could pass through something because of what the good Lord was doing three, five, ten years ago, right? And so he's always preparing us for the next thing. And, and as long as we are praying mm-hmm. and staying in God's will, ultimately, uh, when that moment arrives to perform whatever task God calls us to perform, we will do it. And we will do so readily. Because to be in relationship with God is to always be disposed to do the will of God at a moment's notice. And certainly this is what we learn in the narrative of, of Moses and Aaron, for sure. All right, well, as always, Andrew, thank you for joining me for another evening. It's always good to just not be in, in monologue, but dialogue, right? <laughs> thank you. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of this time. The time itself is a gift to reflect upon the richness of your word, and we do so always open to the grace of the Holy Spirit. And we pray all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.